person in the Bible who is probably heralded by the Jews even more than Abraham, and that's the person of Moses. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. We hope that you do bring your Bible with you. And I'm sure if you don't have a Bible, one of the ushers would be happy to bring you one or help you out with that because we want you to follow along in God's word. Moses had an incredible life. Incredible life from the beginning all the way through to the time that he was taken to be with the patriarchs. Now, what's interesting about the life of Moses is the fact that God, right from the beginning, used different scenarios in order for him to be spared in that he would be the deliverer later on for the children of Israel. Most of you know the story. You've watched the Ten Commandments every Easter on Channel 7 or whatever channel comes on now. And, you know, you've seen Moses. Uh, Moses probably looked different than Charlton Heston. But, you know, Charlton Heston did pretty good depiction. Uh, I think that Pharaoh looked like Yul Brenner. Um, you know, I mean, just, a, you know, you have that classical confrontation which is going on, which is part of the story this morning. But what you have to realize is that right from the beginning, God knew what he wanted to do with Moses. And God knows exactly what he wants to do with you and with me. There's no mistakes in the kingdom of God. There's no mistakes with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that we're saved by faith. And that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of it, that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Your life is already pre preplanned. However, there is a unique dynamic that goes with the Lord, and that is the fact that he's also given you free will, that you can either make yourself available for that plan to be fulfilled in your life, or you can bypass that plan in order to do whatever you want to do. And it's at your own consequence. The consequence isn't your salvation, because salvation is a gift. But the consequence is the rewards that you're abdicating to someone else. Because if you don't take up those works that God has prepared beforehand, someone else will. Someone else will get in your place, because God's work will be done. See, the beauty about it is that God doesn't need you, but he wants you. God can do his work through angels, through animals. I mean, he did it through a donkey one time, and he does it through donkeys every Sunday morning, the Stamii Bulbus. <laughs> Doesn't matter what the vessel is. But his great love for you and me wants us to know that our life is worth more than just to come to grips with our need for a Savior and to accept a Savior and then wait for heaven to occur. So much more to it than that. That is not what Christianity is about. It's not about waiting to get to a destination. It's about preparing ourselves to be changed, to become in the image of our Savior, so that when heaven does occur, it's not going to be a change of attitude or a change of life, just a change of address. See, that's what we forget. If we only look at Christianity about something that is yet to come, about the, you know, we're just hanging in there, we're just trying to struggle through until finally the rapture occurs, or, or we should die and go home to be with the Lord, you know, and then we finally get to the reward. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding that every day, God wants to do something new in your life. God wants to do something incredible in your life. God is waiting for you to just be able to open your eyes that morning to say, here we go. What are you going to do today? What is it you're going to teach me, show me, use me? How am I going to bless someone else? How are you going to do the work in my heart so that I'm going to be touched? I'm going to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal of Christianity. And if we decide that we only want to have an hour a week on a Sunday morning, and we think that that's going to give us what we need in order to be transformed into the image of the Lord. We're sadly mistaken. Because God wants to do so much, as we're going to see this morning. Now, if you're in Exodus chapter 5, and I hope you are, you're going to see something that occurs. And we're going to jump to verse 22. And I'm going to give you the background as we look at verse 22 together. As you're on your way there, we realize that Moses was spared as a baby. He was in an ark. Uh, in the bulrushes, and his sister Miriam was watching over him as Pharaoh's daughter finds this little basket. Her heart is touched. She looks at this little Hebrew child, and she takes him as her own. 
To which Miriam goes and says, hey, do you want me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse the child, which was Moses' own mother? And she gets paid for it. That's just the way God works, isn't it? Yeah. All these other you know, children are perishing, and yet Moses is spared. Mom gets him. He goes into the court of Pharaoh, raised in the court of Pharaoh, raised as one of the Egyptians, understands the culture, the ideas, the protocol, all the things that are going on, until finally he gets the word from the Lord that he's to be the deliverer. And thus, he takes it upon himself to try to become the deliverer by killing an Egyptian that is beating up one of the Hebrew slaves. Well, at that point, he believes that he is going to prove to the children of Israel that he is the deliverer, and yet God had a different plan for him. He finds out that all of a sudden it's known that he's the murderer and he has to flee, and he goes into the wilderness for the next 40 years. And this is something that's amazing that I think we need to understand in the scripture. Do you realize that Moses' ministry did not start until he was 80? We think by 80, you're, you know, you're at the early bird special and in bed by 7.30 and clipping coupons. And that's it. You know, that's about what 80's worth. You know, I mean, if you can make it, you know, and you're not wearing Depends, you're in good shape. <laughs> not the case. Not the case. You're thinking, well, if I'm young, then, then God's going to use me. Hey, you know what? When you look at the scriptures, when people got to 80, they were just starting. They were just beginning. They were just on the journey. And this is an incredible thing. So God says to Moses and Aaron after the burning bush incident, and he goes to the children of Israel, and he says, God has called me to be a deliverer. And God says to him, go into Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go. So what is Moses thinking? Yeah, this is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be terrific. I'm going to go in. I'm going to say to Pharaoh, let the people go. Pharaoh's going to let the people go. But God had already warned him. He's not going to let the people go. But Moses sort of forgot that part. So he goes in, has the confrontation with Pharaoh, and says to Pharaoh, you need to let the people go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I'm not going to obey him. And you know what? You guys are slothful. You're lazy. You're looking for a vacation. You're looking to go in the wilderness to have a little week-long barbecue? Not going to happen. Not at my expense. So this is what's going to happen. The quota of bricks that you need to make are not going to stop, but now you have to go gather the straw on top of it as a binding agent for the bricks. I'm not going to give that to you anymore. So Moses leaves with Aaron, and the people are probably waiting. What did he say? What did he say? What did he say? When are we going to be delivered? And Moses is sort of saying, well, there's a little change to the plan. You're not going to be delivered right now, and you have to go gather straw. Didn't settle very well with the people, which brings us to chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. So Moses returns to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. There is absolutely nothing wrong with going to the Lord and asking him, what's up? What is happening? You know, many times when we go to the Lord, we go to him with questions. And the questions are, Lord, why didn't you, or why don't you, or why couldn't you, or, or, or I thought. You're no different than the great men and women in the scriptures. Many times when the patriarchs, our forefathers, great men and women were struggling with what they thought God was going to do, and then it wasn't according to their plan or their timing. They had questions. It was that same idea that Abraham had. Remember when God said to Abraham, you are going to have a multitude of descendants as the stars of the sky and the sands on the beach. Abraham was confounded by that. How is it that that's going to happen? In Genesis 15, he says, Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? I'm not going to have a heritage. I, I don't have a child. How is this going to happen? Difficult thing for you to understand. As God was changing his name, was changing the lineage of the destiny of what he thought. He said, uh, you know, why don't you just give my inheritance to Eliezer? My, my hand servant, uh, you know, look, he's the guy. Just, just give all my stuff to him because I don't have a child. And God says, 
No, but you will, Abraham. And it'll be an amazing thing. Same thing happened with Job. When Job lost everything that he had, he said, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. He says, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy, Lord? I don't understand. I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. Those people that have come and try to be my comforters, they've said to me, confess your sin, confess your sin. If I had sin, I'd confess it. But there is no sin. And yet all these things are occurring to me. Why? How about you? You ever go thing, through things in your life and you turn around and you say to the Lord, I don't understand. Why is this happening? Why is this sickness? Why is this tragedy? Why is this difficulty? Why, Lord? Why? I don't get it. Well, part of it is because we've bought into the idea of the American dream that we're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that we're not supposed to have trouble or sorrow or sickness or difficulty. That we're only supposed to have good things. And we transfer that over to our Christian relationship with the Lord. That God is there as the 911 button. That he's just there to get me out of trouble, to get me out of the difficulty, but yet he is supposed to just give me all the good things. And that's not the way that life works. The one person who deserved the ultimate treatment of royalty was crucified. Do you think about that? The one person on the planet who was born, who had absolutely no sin and lived sacrificially for others, was beaten like a dog and called a bastard all the time and rejected. And we look at his life and Jesus said, if they've persecuted me, they will persecute you. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The point is this, guys. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he is faithful to his promises. But those promises aren't always manifested in the way that we like. And that's unfortunate, but it's for our good. It's for our good. It's not for, you know, in a way that is going to be demeaning. And yet, the reason why God has to work in that way is to break through our selfishness. We are so selfish, aren't we? Now you go, no, 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 I'm not selfish. I'll prove it to you. I'll give you two words that prove how selfish you are. Group picture. Who's the first person you'd look for? You don't look at, for me, you're not looking and you say, oh, look at how wonderful all these people look. You know, you're looking, you're going, oh, I closed my, you know, I got the one eye closed. I got the hair thing sticking out. Take the picture over. You do. You are so into you. You woke up this morning. Some of you looked in the mirror. Some of you did not. For those of you who did not, I want to let you know you're still good looking. I mean, that's the thing. You know, when you, you go to these workout places, yeah, yeah, as you can tell, I don't go to gyms that often, okay? But that's okay, because you know what? When I go to gyms, I, what do you see around the gyms? Mirrors! Why? Because guys who are working out, Ugh. yeah, baby. <laughs> you know? They love looking at themselves. I like what Pastor Lloyd said, me, myself, and I, the trinity of stupidity. And that's really what all these sufferings and sorrows and difficulties are about in our lives. They're so that we can get away from ourselves and our selfishness and our self-centeredness. Why me? Why me, Lord? And the answer is, why not you? Why should you be exempt? Why should other people go through difficulties and not you? You know, the scripture says to comfort those with the comfort that you've been comforted with. But if you never have any problems, you can't relate to somebody who's hurting. You can't relate to somebody who has difficulty. When you get that oncology report back and it says positive for cancer, how are you going to be able to minister to that person 
But if you, cancer has touched your family, or maybe even yourself, you know what that's like. You know that phone call. You know that fear that overcomes you. You know that mortality that all of a sudden sets in. And you could go to that person and you could say, I understand. I've been there. I know. I know what it is to lose a child. I know what it is to lose a spouse. I know what it is to lose a mom or a dad. I know what it is to fail and lose my job. I know what it is to, to have to humble myself and ask for food. I, I, you know, I, I know what it's like to have a wayward child, one that is on drugs or drinking or, 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 or pregnant outside of marriage. I know what all those things are about. And I understand. I understand because I know that there's a God who's greater than all those circumstances. Because I know that there's a God who redeems and restores and that there are people like myself, who run and try to find happiness and, and wonderful experiences only to find out that they're traps that ensnare you into prisons. And yet there's one who promises life and that life abundantly if you would just bow your knee to him. And this is the case that we find here. It's the case of the fact of Exodus chapter 6, which is where we're going today, of what God will do if you will allow him to do it. So in Moses' case, God is going to provide that answer. Lord, why haven't you delivered? You only brought evil upon these people. Well, God's promise comes in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So he says these two things to Moses. He wants him to understand, I'm in control, and I remember the covenant. I remember what I said to you, what I said I will do. And this is the beauty. You know, Moses' complaint was about God wasn't doing what he said he was going to do. And Moses was discouraged, and we get discouraged too, but you know what our discouragement comes from? Same thing with Moses. He was too impressed by Pharaoh and not impressed enough by God. He looked at the circumstances and believed that the circumstances were greater than God. You know, when you look at the ability or the difficulty of a circumstance, it's measured by the ability of the agent able to perform. Now, I have to tell you something. If we have a little basketball game outside, in the back, I notice you have a basket out there. I don't know how many guys you know, participate or how many kids. But if I were to come here and let's say I would say to Pastor Joe and Vinny, okay, I'd say, yeah, Pastor Joe and Vinny, uh, we're going to play two on two. It's going to be you two against me and LeBron James. <laughs> and they're going to go, okay, and I'm going to take the ball out and I'm going to just throw it up in the air to LeBron and you got to slam it over Pastor Joe, okay? And, I'm, and then I'm going to say, well, that's one. And then I'm going to stand there. And I'm going to throw the ball up again. And he's going to slam it over Vinny and that's two. And I'm just going to do that about a dozen times until they go, we quit. Why? I look and I go, we win. I didn't do anything. I just threw the ball up. Why? Because I know the ability of the agent to perform the task. How big is your God? We look at circumstances and we cry out as though God is ignorant or impotent. God, you don't know or you can't do this. And oh, look at the circumstance. And, oh, God, oh, God. And God is looking and going, what? That's what I love about David. I love the fact that David, he came to his brothers who were fighting against Goliath. He wants to check things out, see how the battle's going. Brings the ten cheeses from his father. He's the littlest, the ruddiest. He's looking, and all of a sudden, here comes Goliath out. Men of Israel, send someone out to fight. What's David do? He doesn't, he doesn't hide like the other Israelites. He's not hiding behind the rock going, oh, look at how big he is. Look at that shield. Look at that spear. Look at those biceps. He's the guy in the gym. <laughs> what does David say? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? Whoa, wow. I think that David was just so confident because he saw what God had already done with his life. He goes to the king, he goes to Saul, and he says, hey, I've killed the lion, I've killed the bear, what the heck is this little guy going to do? 
And I'm sure that David, when he went out, David walked out in the middle. And I've been to the Valley of Elah. Any, any of you here been to Israel? Been to the Valley of Elah? Where they had the fight? It is an amazing place. You're in the Valley of Elah. I went to the brook and I took five stones out of the brook and I brought them home with me. Not to throw at my kids, <laughs> but I gave them to each one of my sons. And I have a daughter as well because I want them to know that there's no giant in their life that's bigger than the God that they serve. I can imagine that David went out there and Goliath comes and David just sort of stood there and said, man, you are in trouble. You think you're big and you're bad. And by the way, thanks for blocking the sun for me for a second. Give me some shade. But look up, Goliath. The God that made the sun, the moon, and the stars in this planet, who is massively bigger than you, is the one you're fighting against. And today, you're going down. Today is the day that God will show how great he is. And this is what God will do for you and for me and will do for Moses here as he's speaking to Moses. Notice that he starts with, I will. All throughout this chapter, you're going to find something very fascinating. It's called the seven I wills of God, who now speaks confidence into the life of Moses. And we will see what God will do now. Here's the other thing. This is not just an Old Testament example. This is a New Testament promise. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more. Exceedingly. Abundantly. Exceedingly. You know what exceedingly means? Exceedingly means that you're saying, well, God, I need a dollar, and he gives you a dollar and a penny. Exceedingly is God gives you a hundred dollars. More than what you can even ask or think. It is amazing how God has worked in my life and in your life. But I can only speak to you of my experience from this perspective. My wife and I have watched God be faithful to us time after time after time after time after time in our lives. Times where we literally had nothing. I remember we, I've shared this many times in, in my own fellowship just to encourage and I'll share this with you. My wife and I are in Bible college. At the time, we were in this little town called Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Phoenixville, Pennsylvania was an old steel town. The unemployment rate in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania at that moment was 40%. Not 4%, 40%. Nobody had jobs. There were no jobs to be had. I'm sitting there and I'm in, I'm in school going to get my degree with my lovely bride. We're in this room that is our apartment that is about the size of the stage. That's living room, dining room, bedroom, bathroom, everything is about the size of the stage. Very small place. In fact, it was so cool in the fact that I could sit at our kitchen table and if the door knocked, I just leaned back and opened it. <laughs> and that was it. Now, had no money. God was good though. I had, I had my, my schooling paid and so we weren't gonna get kicked out of the housing. But my wife took out the last box of spaghetti that we had out of the cupboard. She cooked it, and we sat down to pray, and she said, well, let's enjoy this. This is all we have. This is it. We have no more money for food. We don't know what we're going to do. And we bowed our head. As soon as we bowed our head to thank the Lord, knock on the door came. Now, you have to understand that where we were was in a barracks-type situation because it was an old army hospital that we were at that had been renovated. And so all the dorms for the married couples were next to one another in this long hallway. And this knock came, and I opened the door. And when I opened the door, there were two bags of groceries that were sitting there filled. Nobody could have put those, that food there and walked away fast enough that when I opened that door, it was a miracle from God. And when that food ran out, that was the day that I was hired by United Parcel Service. My wife happened to be pregnant, too with my first son. We didn't know how we were going to pay. 
until I worked for United Parcel Service. Back then, which is way back in the 80s, I was making $9 an hour part-time. And when I made it through the first 30 days, full medical benefits. They paid every penny for the birth of my son. God will not be any man's debtor. God will not be your debtor. God will do what he said he will do. And let's look at this. In verses 2 through 5, God begins by saying to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I've also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians kept in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. So God says that I am the Lord. He's reminding Moses of the great name Yahweh. Now, he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and gave them the promise, but they didn't see the promise. This is what he's saying. The patriarchs knew the name Yahweh. Over 160 times it's used in Genesis. However, in this particular case, this was the generation that was going to see the fulfillment of that promise. See, it's one thing for me to say to you, oh, I believe that God can provide for my needs. But I got to tell you, till the day I die, I'm going to tell that story about that food that came miraculously. I saw the promise. It's one thing to know about the promises. It's another thing to experience the promises. And my wife and I have seen all kinds of things happen in our lives. People have given us cars. People have turned around and said, oh, we'll pay for this. Oh, do you need that? You want to go here? You want to go? And, and we're like sitting there going, God, you are just amazing. Now, that's not, you know, the idea of that. I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, hon, let's go. Lexus, 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 Mercedes, Rolls Royce, Bentley, yes. That's not the case. First of all, you got to be careful what you wish for. Because you could be praying for a Bentley, but do you know what it costs to change oil on that sucker? <laughs> You'll go bankrupt just maintaining it. So... Ask for Honda. Okay. I remember my covenant, he says. I remembered my covenant. Not that God ever forgot it. See, whenever you see something in the scripture that says that God remembers, it's not like all of a sudden he's up in heaven and he goes, oh, darn. So busy with Michael and Gabriel and all the things that are happening up here and down. Oh, man, I just, I forgot. Now I remember. No. It, the idea is in Hebrew, he chooses to focus. He chooses to make that the center of attention. When he says, I remember the covenant, he says, it's time now. It's time for me to come back to this focus to remind you because it's what you need to understand. He says, this is what you say to the children of Israel. This is what you say to the people of God. And this is what we're called to do on Sunday mornings is to bring you God's word and to remind you of the covenant that God has made, the promises that God has made to you. Listen to what he says. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Seven I wills. And in essence, God is saying, you can count on me. What do you need to count on God for today? How many of you have needs? Okay, good. For those who didn't raise their hand, you can pray for us. Okay? We all have needs, don't we? We all have things in our lives that we're perplexed about or that we look at and we go, oh, man, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to tell you this morning, as you look at this, look at what he says. These glorious things. And there's something amazing about this. I will bring you out. I'll rescue from bondage. I'll redeem you. Take care of my people. Be your God. Bring you into land. Give you his heritage. In Hebrew, all these are in the past tense. Not future. Even though it says, I will, as if it's going to be future, it's past tense because God has said, Boom, it's done. It's finished. See, when God says he's going to do something, you can bank on it. You can count on it. See, 
I would love to give each of you a check this morning. Would you like a check from me this morning? And you know, you would be thrilled if I gave each one of you a check for $10,000, wouldn't you? You would just be so awesomely touched. You would go, man, usually I have to, I have to give money. Today, they're giving checks out. And you would just be thrilled till you went to the bank to cash it. <laughs> then you'd be disappointed. Because every one of those puppies would be stamped NSF, non-sufficient funds, non-sufficient funds, non-sufficient funds. I can make all kinds of promises and hand you checks and go, here, you could go to the bank with this. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be good until the fulfillment. It's different with God. God has given you a check. He's filled it out. He signed his name. It's good. These are in the past tense in Hebrew. He says, I'm going to do it. This is just the way it works. Now, let's take a look at this in connection to our own relationship with the Lord. Because amazingly, these seven things relate to our salvation. It relates to our relationship in Christ. Let's start with Exodus 6.6. 6. Wherefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This begins with salvation. Egypt always in typology is a type of the world system. It is the lost condition of man. He says, I am going to bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And thus we are brought out from underneath the burden of sin. Sin brings forth death. That's the reason why we have our separation from God and why we need a Savior is because the sins that we have committed have created within us a distance from God in our relationship with Him. Not that He cannot bless us, and He does. Not that He cannot fellowship with us, but the fellowship is not a fellowship based upon loving interaction. Now, I have three children and two grandchildren now. And you know what's really cool is that we, we just, this, this past year, I, I had the great privilege to have two grandchildren born. The year before, I had the great privilege of marrying both of my sons within three weeks of one another. So now I have Adeline, who's my granddaughter, and I have Nolan, who's my grandson. Now, here's the crazy thing about having grandchildren. I can play with them, I can bless them, I can have a relationship with them that is different than my own children. And it will be. I am going to spoil those grandkids rotten. Okay? They are coming to my house. If they want ice cream for breakfast, amen. Okay? Come on, come, come get it. Come to Grandpa's house. You're going to have a relationship that's based upon my unconditional love to spoil you and send you home. <laughs> because I'm not going to have to step with you all night long when that sugar rush hits. Okay? It's a different relationship that I have my grandchildren and I have my children. I love my children. I love my grandchildren. But here's the situation with God. God loves us so much and wants to have a great relationship with us, but our sin has kept us from having that real blessing. You know, it's really hard when you want to bless your kids and they just are disobedient. If you bless your kids in their disobedience, you've created a monster. And that's the reason why God doesn't bless us in our disobedience is because he created a monster. Let me say this to you too, and take, take note of this. If you're involved in some kind of sin and God is still blessing your life, don't think you're getting away with it. Never take the patience of God as permission to sin. God is waiting for you to repent. But be sure to know that your sin will find you out. Be sure to know that the day will come if you have not repented of your sin. If you're still involved in it, if you're still actively involved in it, the day will come where you will be exposed and there will be consequences to pay. Because God is also a righteous God. God is a God who cannot turn and not bring judgment upon sin. If you think that he's going to bypass it, you're sadly mistaken. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of those things done in the body, whether they be good or evil, the Bible says. The day of judgment is coming for us in the body of Christ. Judgment begins in the household of God. 
We've got to live a life of holiness. We've got to live a life of righteousness. But that doesn't mean that that life of holiness and righteousness creates within us to be weird, to be strange. It is a loving relationship that God gives opportunity. Come now, let us reason together, you and I, though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. Come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The desire of God is to deal with our sin in a way that's effective and manageable. You see, because the way we deal with sin is not effective, nor is it manageable. It just creates within us a greater burden, a greater prison. You know, these Egyptians caused the Israelites to work in the baking sun of Egypt to build tombs for the pharaohs. And that's exactly what sin does to us. It builds tombs in our lives that we die in our manifestations of sinful activity. They just bring forth death. They destroy the relationship that we have with God and with one another. And God doesn't want that. Look at the second thing, Exodus 6.6. 6. I will rid you of bondage. Liberation. God would not only remove his people from Egypt, but would remove them from the bondage of sin. John 8.34, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We're not. Do you know that potentially you and I never have to sin again? Do you realize that? Romans says, reckon yourself to be what to sin? Dead to sin. And alive to righteousness. You know, dead people don't respond to impetus. You know, the one nice thing for me, should the Lord take me home and I should die, is I don't have to worry about temptation anymore. You see, here's the thing. The one thing that is so difficult... And so obvious when it comes to temptation is when you're dieting. You ever, you, ever, you ever realize that ice cream never tasted so good as when you're dieting? And you give yourself permission. You ever notice how, how much permission you give yourself? I've been good all week, so I can have a piece of that cheesecake. And then you look and you, what happened to the cheesecake? You ate it all. What? You see, because midway through that cheesecake, what do you say? I'll start my new diet tomorrow. Because <laughs> you figure, I'm already in, man. That's it. Let's just continue. Double fisting, man. Oh. And let's pour a few strawberries on top of that puppy. See, that's what sin does. Sin draws you in, and then all of a sudden, it drops the hammer. And you can't control it. It overwhelms you. It consumes you. But you see... I can have every person who comes to my funeral carry a piece of cheesecake and lay it in front of the casket. I'm not coming back to eat cheesecake. I'm dead to that cheesecake. Not now, but I will be. But you see, that's what the Bible says you and I are right now. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can say no to sin and yes to Christ. He's given us freedom from the bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm with great judgments. Redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. You know, the Egyptians were used to having an outstretched arm. That was the way that you got permission from a ruling monarch. The request was made. If the request was accepted, the outstretched arm went out, so let it be done. And you just went ahead. We have an outstretched arm that went, but it was two outstretched arms upon a cross that redeemed us from sin. It brought us back from the curse. So when Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. Exodus 6, 7, and I will take you to me for a people. I will be to you a God, adoption. I will claim you as my family, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, Ephesians 1, 5 tells us, according to the good pleasure of his will. God not only wanted to save you, but he wanted to adopt you. He wants you in the family. 
See, you're not a factory worker punching a ticket for God on a Sunday morning, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, and okay, I'm punching my ticket to work for you, God. You are not a factory worker. You are a plant. You are producing fruit. You are out there enjoying the elements, the sun, the wind, the the, the rain. You're growing, you're producing fruit, and it's abundantly being produced through God's work within your life. And you're part of the family. See, the really cool thing about being in the body of Christ is that you're part of my family. And when you're part of the family, you got to accept me. And I have to accept you. Now, this is the weird thing. Sometimes we look at our family and we go, I don't know why I'm in this family. Because you look at the family and you go, man, we are dysfunctional. I don't know of a family that's not dysfunctional. I don't know why people say that. Dysfunctional. Everybody's got a dysfunctional family. Any of you have a family that's not dysfunctional? Raise your hand. Look around. There's nobody that's not dysfunctional. And if you did raise your hand, you're a liar and you're dysfunctional. everybody's got problems. Everybody's got difficulties. Everybody's messed up. But God didn't say, I want you part of the corporation. Here's your card-carrying Christian association. It's family. And so what does it mean to be in a family? It means you have to be there for each other. I have to be there for you. You have to be there for me. That's what it means. It means that when it's inconvenient, tough. Yeah, I, I, I had that this week with my daughter. I have to confess my sin to you. Okay? I'm watching the NBA playoffs. My daughter comes walking in. Now, my wife has already gone to bed, which means I'm free to watch the game without hindrance. Okay? Now, it's not my wife. You know, I got to tell you something. My wife is very, very low maintenance. She doesn't, you know, she understands I love my wife. She is the best woman in the world for me. Probably terrible for you, but best for me, okay? Because I got to tell you, God gave me the best woman on the planet. I can't find somebody that will match her, and you know what? I'm not looking. She is the love of my life, and she's the best, okay? Wonderful wife, great mom, even greater grandma, because she does ice cream in the morning, too, okay? (laughs) But here's the deal. My daughter comes walking in. It's like... Two minutes left in the game, and she comes walking, and she jumps on the couch and says, I need to talk to you about my car. Uh, um, okay. Now, the TV's over here, and she's over there. What about your car? Well, can I take your car in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can take my car. No, no problem. Well, is it, are you sure it's okay? Yeah, it's okay. Well, I, how, I'll leave my keys for you. Okay. Really? You can have my car in the morning, okay? I'm watching the game. And then she says to me, well, you know, we have a DVR. You could put the game on pause and talk to me and then go back to the game. Yes, I could. I could have. But I didn't. I wanted to watch it live as it was happening. And you have to realize that my life was radically changed because I, I watched it 12 seconds before, I could have watched it. And you see, my daughter was right. She had a need. I could have put, I, could, I forgot we had DVR, by the way, but, but you see, that's the thing. Her needs needed to come before the game. But I'm sitting there going, uh, and then I bark at her that you're bothering me because I'm trying to watch the game. Because I tried to explain to her, you know, I tried to get a little pastoral on her. We have to understand the difference between men and women. Men can only do one thing at a time, and I want to watch the game right now. <laughs> women can do various things. You can cook, uh, you know, change a baby, and do all that kind of stuff. God bless you. I'm watching the game. <laughs> See, that's that, but that didn't work with her. And it was something that God needed to speak to me, and He needed to, and He needed to say to me, you know what? You always say people are more important than things. Is your daughter more important than the game? And the answer is obviously yes. Sometimes it's going to be inconvenient, is my point, guys, but we're family. Sometimes it's going to mean you humbling yourself and meeting the need of somebody else in this fellowship. 
even when you don't want to. And I got to tell you, and, I, and Pastor Joe didn't ask me to do this. He's not paying me to do this. But I got to tell you, as a pastor, I can tell you something. There are some of you here who come here week in and week out, and you do nothing but come and you sit and you do nothing in this fellowship. And I have to tell you, it breaks our hearts. Not because things won't get done. Things will get done. Other people will do them. But if you're not serving somehow in this fellowship, if you're not plugged in somehow in this fellowship, you're ripping yourself off. And it breaks our hearts as pastors. Not because we're looking for more people to do more things. Sure, that helps. But here's the thing. You will never understand the blessing it is that God looks down and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if you're not serving. You'll never hear that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, well done, thou good and faithful pew potato. I never read that. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be involved as much as someone else. Nobody's calling you to do anything more than what you are called to do in the way and manner you're called to do it. But you need to be involved in whatever God has called you to do here. And you need to make your gifts and talents available to other people because if you don't, we can't replace you. You are unique. You are made to serve here. If God has called you here, he has equipped you here, you have gifts and talents here, you need to use them here. And that's the bottom line. Now, don't go up to Pastor Joe and say, I'm called to preach for you, okay? <laughs> don't do that, okay? If you are called to preach, God will make it known. And if God opens up the opportunity, it'll, you know, I mean, don't, don't come and say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not called to clean the toilets, I'm called to preach. Don't do that. Now, if you, call, if you are called to teach, if you have the gift of teaching, I bet you that Sunday school could really use you. I bet you that there's a Sunday school class. You know what Pastor Chuck says at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa? He says when somebody comes and says, I'm called to the ministry, he sends them to second grade Sunday school. <laughs> he says, if you can preach the gospel to second graders, you can preach it to adults. So he sends them to second grade. Very quickly, let's finish up. Exodus 6-7. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Revelation. You will know who I am. You'll realize what I've done. Same thing has occurred with us with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's God Almighty. John 14, 9. Jesus said to, to Philip, have I not been with you so long? And you've not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? God is going to reveal more and more about his greatness, about his majesty, about his deity. And then he says, I will bring you into the land concerning which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll bring you into the land that I prepared for you. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again that you may be where I am. Jesus is preparing a place for you and I. And then finally in verse 8, I will give you to you for an inheritance. I am the Lord, the promise of God. The promise that he is going to not only make this promise available for you, but also for a heritage for the next generation that comes. Acts 2.39 says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What a beautiful thing that we have, these seven I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Notice something that's not in this passage. There's not one time it says you must or you should. There is no activity on your part but to understand of what God will do. And that's the way it is with the gospel too, guys. There's nothing that you could do to earn salvation, to prove to God that you're worthy of salvation. It's a gift of God. But there is something that you can do. And my heart, over the years that I've been preaching, and now it's been over 30 years, was broken the first time that I heard this and continues to be broken. As I read the words of Jesus that says, broad is the way to destruction and many are those who walk upon it. And narrow is the road that leads to eternal life and few are those that find it. When we get to heaven, guys, the percentage of people that we're going to go get into heaven is much significantly less than those who are going to hell. Why? It's very simple. The offer of salvation has been placed for every person, but there are those who reject it. That same brokenheartedness is in verse 9, if you look at our passage this morning. Look at what it says. Moses spoke all these things to the children of Israel, 
what God will do. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it says, but they did not heed Moses because the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Their centuries of slavery made them think like slaves instead of people of the covenant. Pharaoh was bigger in their eyes than God was. And Ezekiel chapter 20 tells us why God was so small and Pharaoh was so big in Israel's heart at that time. Ezekiel explains that they trusted the gods of their oppressors, worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. Even though they still doubted, they were offered. God continued to offer them salvation. God continued to offer them deliverance. God continued to keep his promises before them. God will never, ever back out. And I have to tell you, if you're here this morning, maybe you've heard the gospel 10 million times. Maybe your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather have been praying for you and you don't know the Lord Jesus this morning. That promise is still for you today. That offer of salvation is still for you today. But if you have closed your heart off, if you have turned and decided that, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with this, God will not force himself upon you. He'll respect your choice. But that choice is for you today. And the beauty of this is that God says to Moses in verses 10 through 13, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel, for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And this I love. Moses says, Pharaoh hasn't heeded me. The people don't listen to me. Why should I continue? And it's the same thing that God the Father says that we say as human fathers. Because I said so. You ever have your child say, well, why do I need to do that? Because I said so. And you know what? He says to Moses, go and do this. Well, they're not listening to me. That's not what it's about. It's not about the results. It's about your obedience. Do what I told you to do. And you will find that there's a blessing connected to it. And there's a blessing this morning for you and I as we trust in what God will do for us. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your work that you do in